0: police said so By this time they had taken my phone and they were looking through my chats and um, they found out that I had sent photos to Zoe. That is when the gentleman started chatting Zoe as though I was the one talking to him. So around this time, they said, take a statement. He pushed me, I sat on a chair. They slapped me from the back.
1: On my way, I booked Uber. And the Uber
0: driver used the UPSA route. So I was actually on my phone. And all I could realize was that the car stopped. And he said, police. So I said, well, police, then maybe they are in to search for, um, I mean, amnesty. And illegal stuff as well. So he told me to come out and I came out of the car, told me to remove everything I have in my pocket. That was my thousand CDs and my phone. So after I removed it, he asked me, what do I do? I told him I'm a student. He started asking me questions about my family and stuff. I answered him. So I told him, if anything, is there any reason why he's asking me all these questions? Because I don't feel safe with what he's asking. He said, so I decided to call my dad. I was calling him and he snatched, one of the cops snatched my phone. And he hung up the call and he went through my mail. Hello and welcome to Our Culture, a podcast about media, culture and politics. My name is Nii Koteinikwe. Today we are joined by Justice Tankaby, a lecturer in criminology. We discuss state security violence and policing in Ghana. We also examine how popular ideas around crime shape the way we think about the role of the police and security. Hello, Justice. Thank you for joining us. Could you briefly introduce yourself? Thank you very much for inviting me. My
1: name, of course, is Justice Tanguy. I'm a lecturer here at the Institute of Criminology at the University of Cambridge, um, where I also direct the PhD program. And um, I've been... uh, here for I think how many years now? Fifteen. First, uh, yeah, <laughs> first uh, studying for my uh, master's in criminological research, and then continuing to do my PhD. And um, my areas of research are mainly uh, on policing, uh, corruption, vigilante violence, police violence, um, legitimacy, and criminal justice and a few other uh, topics. So these are the areas that I've been working on with some of my work. I think it's fair to say that a, quite a significant bit of my empirical work has been on Ghana. Uh, then, of course, as you probably would have seen, I do quite a bit of theory also.
0: So how did you find yourself studying and working and looking at uh, you know, uh, policing in Ghana, for example? And could you briefly share some of the broader kind of uh, research and study that you've done? on policing specifically
1: growing up my original intent was to to join the ghana armed forces that was my uh, ambition and um my one of my brothers he's late now he discouraged me from doing that and said it was better that i went to university and um he was a police officer and I lived with him at the uh, police barracks uh, railways police barracks. That's when I became exposed to um, s- some aspects of their work, especially their interactions with suspects, which was always a point of uh, quite intense disagreement <laughs> between me and, and 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 some of his colleagues and that's what got me interested okay, so could you could evidence uh, make any difference could could academic research into uh, policing be one avenue uh, for uh, encouraging um, reforms um, in policing. So that, that's what got me interested. So when I went to study my BA at the University of Ghana, in sociology, that was the. I remember the first day or so uh, after listening to Professor Chris Abochi, who is also late now, I went to him straight and asked about penology and criminology in the final year. And, and that's where it began. Yeah, And um, the topics I've explored so far have included um, issues around public perceptions of uh, the Ghanaian police. I have also um, written on issues to do with corruption more generally. Um, And two of my uh, recent, more recent papers on corruption uh, had to do with the, um, um, how might you call it, Uh, corruption perceptions and intentions among uh, prospective uh, elites, as we call them. Uh, These were uh, final year university students, and they were, of course, at a critical stage of entering uh, public and private sectors, uh, more likely to be uh, in charge of significant resources in the near future. And we were interested in um, their views uh, of corruption, which was a paper I I really enjoyed working on. And then um, part of that data also explored um, people's willingness to assist the authorities uh, in tackling uh, uh, corruption. Yeah, so these have been some of the work that I've done on, on the police in Ghana. And of course, I've also written on vigilante violence.
0: Yes, yes. And then you've also looked at um, police violence as well which is which is which is essentially why I invited you to come in and and share some of your insight with us could you briefly walk us through um, you know the history of policing in Ghana and and carefully think about how it kind of relates to what we are seeing now um when we look at the the history of the police um what are some of the challenges that you you can see that still persist I think I mean one of the things that first struck me when
1: I was reading now, and that was during my PhD, um, uh, reading about the history of policing in, in in the Gold Coast, as it was called then, and then of course of the police in in England and Wales. Was the fact that they they seem to have started around about the same time. So if you look at the time that uh, George Maclean, uh, the governor of the Gold Coast, uh, started having what you might call uh, a professional police uh, service. Uh, So you had these individuals stationed at uh, the palaces of uh, key uh, traditional leaders, and their mandate was to keep him informed. So they were basically like uh, intelligence officers uh, stationed at uh, various palaces. And then of course, from that was around like 1830, 1831, Um, And then, of course, uh, it became expanded um, in in the ways that we now uh, know. And I think one thing we can say, of course, if you look at, so this was about the same time that Robert Peel, who is the brainchild of the British police, or at least policing in England, 1829, he was uh, doing a lot to to start uh, a professional police service and investing a lot in legitimizing the the uh, the service. Uh, but you can see that the, the, the strategies, the tactics uh, were completely different. So in England and Wales, they were investing a lot in legitimizing the police and making the police more community oriented. So one of the things that they used to say was that the police were the community, and the community were the police, uh, and that sort of underscores the the bond that they wanted to establish between the police, the new police service, and and the, the community. And a lot of emphasis on on recruitment and making sure there was um, it was an impartial process significant emphasis on officers working without having to use force. So a lot of the things that today, when we think about democratic policing, we are at the forefront of our of our discussion, were things that they were doing at the time. And then when you look at the Gold Coast, it was quite the opposite, right? In the Gold Coast, this was uh, right from the beginning, highly militarized police service, emphasis on maintaining law and order, protecting the property classes, and of course, the, the colonial establishment. And we can understand why that happens because you we cannot understand policing, as we've been said time and time again, outside the political context, right? It, it doesn't occur okay in a vacuum. It occurs okay within a context of socio-economic and political forces. And those forces shape the nature of policing. So one thing, I, I analogy I often give students is, if you have an armed robber, Coming into your house, he doesn't need you to think of him as legitimate, right? He's just coming in to loot. And this is what was the rationale of colonial rule, of course. It was there as an economic enterprise to extract as much resources as they could. And in that sense, I mean, even thinking about legitimacy and confidence and trust was almost out of place, right? And of course, we also know that just a few years before, the people who are now decolonized were uh, the people who were being uh, traded like tomatoes and and, and, and pineapples in, in the slave trade. And if you look at some of the adverts, uh, <laughs> I mean, they were um, uh, goods to be traded. They were less human. Okay. So the sort of thing that we we will think about when we talk about building trust in institutions and so forth were, we're missing. But I, I think one thing that really strikes me and uh, looking at some comments that uh, Ghana's first president uh, Nkrumah made about uh, the colonial policing. Uh, and I think it's a really, I, I think it's, a, it's it's an excellent um, characterization of the nature of of policing especially in colonial uh, uh, context. And his point was that if we looked at colonial policing, and this was his address to cadets uh, right after independence, that colonial policing was characterized by three things. He said they were peremptory, they were ingratiating, and they were subservient, right? Peremptory, so, uh, I mean, no dialogue. You do as I say, right? Uh, Because in that context, the colonial police officer isn't really that concerned about uh, your views of him. He's accountable to the colonial establishment, not you. And therefore, the issues around uh, the kind of investment you would like to see in building uh, relationships with the public was not there. The kind of dialogue that we think is critical in in a democratic uh, context wasn't there. Of course, they will be ingratiating to the uh, colonial uh, uh, masters because they were their pay masters, right? And and then, of course, subservient. And we see precisely uh, something of that sort. In uh, uh, We see the continuities, so to speak, in terms of this, this tripod, right? Policing in Ghana continues in a large measure to be peremptory, right? Questioning the officer... Uh, it's not something that they take uh, uh, lightly, right? Um, the, uh, some of them we see are falling over themselves, as we would say, to, to please the political uh, class, right? And of course, we know that the kind of accountability structure that we have, is not one that um, is designed to make police officers accountable to the population. I mean, to the ordinary Joe and Jane. They are, uh, the accountability structures are designed to make them accountable to the political uh, class. Okay, So I think if we, if we focus on colonial policing in the way that Nkrumah, I think, rightly identified that it's characterized by these three features, we see that this continues to be the case. So what has really changed is that you've got one group of elites being replaced by another, but the ideology. structures, they remain almost uh, intact.
0: Thank you. Part of recent conversations around policing has also been that, you know, they are there essentially to protect the economic interest and the sort of social order that exists. And really, fighting crime and keeping security is (laughs) is like an afterthought. That's kind of generally a broad sort of conversation around policing. I wonder how we think about that when it comes to Ghana specifically. And whether that proposition kind of holds and to what extent you think it kind of holds.
1: I think even with colonial policing, we still would not deny that they did attend to some everyday crimes, right? So somebody reported a murder or um, I don't know, any other violent crime or something like that. It's not something they completely ignored. And if you look at the, the records, they they kept quite uh, detailed uh, records on some uh, certain types of crimes. You can say that that's still linked to the overall aim of uh, policing in the colonial establishment because you still want some form of social order to be able to exploit the resources that you wish to. And I think when we look at policing today, it it still remains the case that um, police officers are attending to everyday uh, crime problems that um, citizens face. I've spoken with some police commanders across the country, a PhD student and I, uh, spent quite some time interviewing a number of regional commanders, divisional and district commanders across the country. And in some cases you see that some of them are genuinely um, interested in in the kinds of harms and disorder that has nothing to do with if you like the political elite. So for example some told stories about say, defilement cases that they had to deal with and some, and in some instances they had to pay for medical examination themselves in order to ensure that the, the suspects are, are brought to book. So that happens. But it remains the case almost everywhere. And this is not just a Ghanian situation that policing is a political activity and to the extent that it is it will bear down quite heavily on those at the margins of society and their, their safety needs, their uh, a need for security, the kind of harms that might be a border to them every day, might not necessarily be a priority for uh, uh, for the police. Okay, So there's a sense in which the, the task of police reform sometimes, or even policing is how can we ensure that police resources are targeted at the most significant harms in in any society. And those harms will not be um, the elite's feelings of insecurity, even if there is no objective, um, if you like, there's no evidence that somehow crime rates are more concentrated where they are than uh, elsewhere. So I guess the point I'm making is that it will be hard to sustain an argument that the police do not care about the everyday safety needs of people. They do, okay? But it's also the case that uh, they, by their design, they tend to uh, be more concerned about the victimization of the powerful. That, unfortunately, is the issue. So one of the t- two technical terms that we often use in the literature is the issue of under-enforcement and over-enforcement, right? So those are the margins, tend to have more law, more policing directed against them, and they, and then they have less policing if they, uh, they have safety needs, right? They underprotected and yet overpoliced. And these are the two uh, issues that any attempt to ensure uh, fairness in policing has to try to deal with. How can we make sure that police resources are properly allocated uh, to where uh, the most harms are concentrated? Uh,
0: part of the argument I've heard is um, some of the socioeconomic sort of challenges can never be addressed by police. And so the idea is, for example, if... You know, you have less educational opportunities, and and that is becoming a pipeline for some form of you know activity, but that may be deemed illegal or criminal. Then, more policing will not necessarily address that kind of core problem, and I'm wondering how we kind of square that up with you know um, uh, the 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 position you just just offered, and thinking through how there are root causes that will never be addressed by policing. Um, But then policing seems to be the catch-all kind of solution for everything. So if there's insecurity, it just means there's less police. So, for example, I've heard conversations about, oh, our ratio, we don't meet the ratio target uh, of like one police officer to 500 citizens or so. And Ghanas kind of hovers around one police officer to 700. And so the argument is, oh, because there's there's more cases of particular sorts of crime, it's because we have less police. Uh, And I'm wondering what, what your thoughts are on that.
1: That's a really interesting question. And I think one must agree that policing is not the solution to the deep economic, political factors that are implicated in criminal behavior, right? They are there essentially in part to try and manage some of the risks, to try and. Um, so there's a sense in which those who focus so much on policing as the solution take offenders for granted, right? And the root and, and the court and the root cause, which are often socioeconomic inequalities in many cases. So for them, yes, we have a stream, we, we have offenders. We have people who want to break the rules. Um, our task is to prevent them from doing so. They don't ask the questions, why are they so predisposed to break the rules? And once you ask those questions, it must be part of the answer to focus on the economic inequalities, to focus on the corruption in society, to focus on all these other structural injustices that might be happening. And I think the other view has often been to say, well, the police can play no role in this kind of game. And I remember just a couple of months ago, in one of my classes, we have a, a part-time uh, master's program for senior police officers here. And I remember teaching on deterrent. And one of those, um, and, and I was making the point that even with deterrent, it, it works best when people have strong bonds with society. And those bonds you can, are essentially about a, a feeling of inclusion, okay? Economically, politically uh, feeling included. So the question came up as, what can police do about this then? Because you see in places where there's deep inequalities and, and and so forth. So part of our discussion was, well, maybe the police can uh, play some role by uh, I don't know, putting a bit of pressure on the political elite to try and deal with some of these. Uh, uh, this. And then a couple of weeks later, uh, one of the uh, police forces here, uh, Merseyside, which is Liverpool area, uh, the police chief constable is talking about uh, having to invest in tackling inequality. This is a police chief talking about this, not a politician. She's trying to make the point that we're we're making here, which is that, look, we can only play a small role. There's a much larger um, uh, array of factors that need to be addressed. And one of these is inequality. So let's invest in tackling those inequalities in society. And there's no question that the societies that have low crime Problems are societies that are more equal. Okay? Look, look at it globally. Whether is uh, especially Scandinavia. Uh, I mean, if you take Norway, Finland, Belgium, all these places, uh, these are relatively more equal societies, right? They've got significant safety net, uh, uh, safety um, uh, net for those at the uh, tittering on the margins of society, right? So policing alone will never solve anybody's crime and safety problem. But economic equality Quality uh, and all these other factors would contribute to reducing uh, the harms and, and and improving safety in society.
0: Yeah, and it seems to me that usually when we when we talk about crime, we we often uh, are essentially talking about particular types of crime, right? So a particular society can have rampant, like quote unquote, sort of economic sort of crimes, white collar crimes, right? Crimes with a pen and paper, but. Uh, you would see a significant amount of resources actually devoted to tackling violent crime. And and I'm thinking about how we think about crime more broadly in in sort of like popular context and its relationship to policing. Uh, And I was wondering whether you could also kind of speak to that, especially the way, for example, media covers crime, right? The most (laughs) socialized... crime stories, you know, somebody stealing money with a contract is less sensational than the bloody murder of, let's say, a young child. And then that leads to then further calls for Particular types of
1: enforcement. Yeah, I think you're spot on on that. Um, I mean, as soon as we talk crime, people are invariably thinking about theft, assault, murder, and uh, they might not even go as far as sexual offences. Right? They're thinking robberies, murder, theft, assault, and and so forth. And once you think in in such terms, it has the danger of unleashing a certain type of policing to address this. And and you see how those crimes, they they kind of emotions that they evoke, right? He, he, in, uh, a child has been murdered. Look at these ro- uh, armed robbers in in masks and, and all those sort of things. But it's the case that the and this is something that uh, radical criminologists often talk about a lot, they say the crimes of the powerful are somehow directly linked to the incidence of crimes on this on the streets as it were. The traditional crimes that we're talking about. Because if it's the case that socioeconomic inequalities are at the heart of criminal behaviour and uh, and the nature of the violence that we sometimes witness. If you, to the extent that that's the case, if you have a society that is not paying attention to some of the uh, the causes of that inequality, and some of those causes are essentially corruption, white collar crime, and even sometimes crimes against the environment, which deprive people of the source of their livelihoods and all those sort of things. Uh, to the extent that one is not tackling those problems. One is merely just engaging risk management. Okay. Uh-huh. And again, what role can the police play? There's a sense in which, again, if you have a police service that is not independent, it's not effective and so forth, it's ingratiating as in a would say to the political class, then they're taking orders from above, right? They are not, when we talk about community policing, then we are talking about, I mean, working with the community to identify what the crime problems, I mean, the safety issues are and it might be that you go to, for example, one of these communities with rampant uh, Galamsay activities, and they might say, for us, the problem here is not theft, it's not assault, it is environmental degradation. It is people who are breaking rules and polluting the environment and, and so forth. So can you please address that problem or work with us to address that problem? But if the police are taking their orders from outside that community, then you can see how that problem will persist. And the longer that problem persists, the more likely you're going to have all these traditional uh if like everyday street level crimes that we are talking about. Okay. So again, it I, I guess it depends on um the nature of the policing that one has. And 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 I think when you talk about the media and, and the way that they cover crimes, uh, I mean they say everywhere they say when it bleeds or if it bleeds itself or whatever that the terminology, you might know that, that better. Okay. So that, that that's often been the the, the, the case. Um, and so So, and you can see how that shapes uh, police responses. So part of the recent drive has been to focus on uh, what they call crime harm, okay? So think about the seriousness of the offense and to focus your resources uh, accordingly. So for example, if we think that corruption is the most significant uh, harm in in society, then you've got to try and allocate a source of harm in society. You've got to try and allocate your resources uh, accordingly. Uh, But again, that requires a certain uh, almost, in some cases, legal, ethical framework within which the police have to work. And if that is absent, more of the same, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. And this brings me to, you know, one of my biggest challenges with thinking about policing. But I, I think it's like, as you've pointed out, it's it's related. The broader sort of economic crimes that produce these massive inequalities, these um, lack of opportunities for a lot of young people, um, then leads to particular sorts of crime that are heavily policed um, in some ways by a police force that is sort of primed to exact violence as as a form of, you know, tackling these crimes. But then, you know, that violence is sort of normalized or legitimized by a population that is primed by this sort of thinking about, you know, where violent crime comes from and who perpetrates it. Um, So one of the things I wanted to kind of really delve into are, you know, why why are the police forces so violent? Why are our state security, and it's not just even the police, right? We could talk about, for example, the way military officers are drafted into everyday policing. I have been to concerts in Ghana and and I see military men, (laughs) you know, acting as security at a music concert. You know, um, it's just everyday sort of things that you would expect to see, maybe even a, a, a sort of like city guard, not even police officer, a city guard, but you see military officers mingling with the public in particular ways that produces a lot of fear, especially given our history um, with coups and, and and dictatorships. One would think that, you know, our Political class will be more circumspect <laughs> in the way they deploy uh, military officers in everyday sort of security concerns. Well, uh,
1: I think it's it's a question that is quite difficult to answer. Um, I mean, of course, one easy way to address this is to think historically and to say um, it's all down to the, what is say the original sin or something, right? You had a, a, a colonial police, a policing arrangement architecture that has at its heart a vow and we we learned from uh, Mbembe and others about the way that the colonized were seen, basically not human. Um, and this approach to policing uh, is what has lived on, right? So that the um, independence wasn't really a moment to, to rethink the ideology that underpinned the police and to try and re-engineer that ideology. Okay. And I mean, you look at, as I said, Leah, in Kroma's, diagnosis which was brilliant. But then what did he do about it? Okay, well, not much. I mean, he seemed to have left the police not really interfering until they attempted assassination, which then seems to, okay. And then we've got a history of military involvement in our politics, very violent, uh, uh, okay. And when you look at that history, what you find is, and I often say this, we say uh, the consequences of military involvement has been to damage parliament and the judiciary, not allowing them the space right to mature. No one talks about the damage that is hard on the police, right? Because whenever that we have this military intervention, the, 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 the line between the police and the military is blurred, right? They also not had the space to really mature, okay? So there's a sense in which they've only had since 1993 to be able to, to think about different ways of policing. Uh, but apart again, the politics hasn't. Uh, the, the broader political context hasn't allowed, hasn't allowed them to do that. So I think there's a part, there's a sense in which part of the problems uh, are, are historical. Okay, it, it, there's a historical dimension to it. But of course, then you have also an elite that find this kind of, uh, this type of policing quite useful. Okay, quite useful for 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 their own own need. <laughs> and there's no way you're going to have a corrupt political elite that is committed to a police force. That is less violent. That is uh, committed uh, committed to enforcing the rule of law. Okay, so th- that's the the second thing to say. Then, of course, there is an issue of, of uh, the recruitment and the everyday management of of police uh, police officers. Um, recruitment is a big issue in some countries. The challenge is how can we attract people to the police service because we will don't want to join. In our case, we've got an abundant supply of prospective police officers, but uh, the recruitment process is not. Uh, it's not uh, impartial, okay, and, and that means you are getting in look, they, uh, quite a number of stories. I mean, I've since uh, I've heard some police officers that, uh, say that they've had people join the service you try to get them to to do the most basic of their duties, and their response is, "Don't bother me. I was just sitting my somewhere," and they said I should come and join the police service, and I went to join. So if you have something that kind of material, it's 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 very difficult, right? So there's a there's a problem of recruitment, there's, there's a problem of supervision of, I feel like, institutional cultures and all that, that, that affect it. So, for example, if you have police officers attend a demonstration fully armed, right, that's not a problem with the individual police officer, okay? There are institutional procedures that say, if we are going to police a demonstration, we should be armed. And if you take arms to a police uh, demonstration, what do you do with the arms? They're not like a coffee machine or something like that, right? You're going to shoot Humans. So if they shoot them, you can. We cannot turn around and blame the individual police officers for being for being. They shouldn't be there with arms in the first place. So there are yes individual problems. There's a recruitment issue, but it's also a cultural uh, issue, like institutional uh, cultures that uh, are bordering sometimes on the rogue that is influencing uh, some of the violence that that we see. And and of course we can also say that the accountability mechanisms are so weak, right? And that's also part of the problem, I'm afraid.
0: So, so part of what I'm hearing you say is, you know, there's a broader sort of environment, sort of nurtured by a political class that find a violent security force um, useful when they are in power. <laughs> of course, when they leave power, they suddenly have <laughs> they suddenly have problems with that same security force. That they don't mind deploying to suppress protests, to shoot live ammunition into protests, and so on. Um, I'm wondering, what are the if this continues unabated, what are some of the sort of implications of this sort of violent sort of um, state security force? What what are some of the implications that you see that can arise out of this? sort of arrangement? Well,
1: I think it would be increased violation of people's rights. That's the bottom line. Of course, the first of these rights is the right to life. So we have that maybe heightened. You would have a democracy that becomes violent and that has possibly the implication that people begin to lose faith in that kind of political arrangement. I think if we look at NSAS now, if we look at the Arab Spring, um, part of the story, especially especially in Egypt and other places, is the violence of the police scale. police violence being a, a, an important factor. So there's a sense in which one can see a significant uh, threat to social order if the police are seen as not part of the solution, but as part of the problem. And having a political arrangement that is not willing to address that issue. So I, I think you can have significant public disorder, you can have um, a threat to uh, to democratic governance. I mean, what some have said is that the quality of our, and of course, as I said, significant damage to the quality of democratic governance. I mean, some have said that we don't measure democracy by just the, the quality of democracy, just by elections and all these things, but by the quality of the police that you have. If the police are shooting people, without cause, if they are unaccountable, if they make arbitrary arrest, then that tells you what you have here is not normal functioning democracy and I think the the, the possibilities of that kind of unhealthy environment I think is it's, it's hard to imagine that
0: um, and and some people have argued that I mean if if so essentially if you have a violent state security apparatus that, suppresses the most basic forms of dissent such as a simple protest then essentially um, you are you are it's a symptom of a broader failure of of a political class that does not want to be held accountable you know part of what I I have been thinking about in terms of thinking about you know the various forms of policing that I see for example from police swoops to um, you know Basic things like, you know, checkpoints all dotted around the city that have now become points of extortion. The rampant suspected armed robbers killed. The so-called police shootout. Sometimes the so-called accidental shooting of a particular suspect. It, it seems that there's, all this hasn't triggered essentially an, a national debate on on state violence. And I, I wonder what you think is happening. What, why, why isn't there more uproar around state-sanctioned violence?
1: Well, I think the situation in, in Ghana is as bizarre as what we find in some uh, states within India, where I've had the experience of um, teaching senior officers uh, there. They have something they call encounter killings. So these are essentially extrajudicial killing of police, uh, of, uh, of uh, suspects. So typically they would say, oh, we went out there, we had a call. Like what you have read from the Ghanaian media uh, or the releases from the police. We had an encounter, there was a shootout, and then people were killed. And one of the um, astonishing thing in, in uh, things in India is that There is such significant uh, public support for this. And in some states, police officers are actually uh, awarded medals for the number of encounters that they've had. Um, I mean, the most recent grotesque example was uh, uh, the rape and murder of uh, a veterinary officer at uh, Hyderabad. And the police essentially arrested these young men, took them to the scene and shot them on uh, the excuse that they they, <laughs> they tried to snatch their weapons and so forth. And you can see police officers being carried shoulder high for what they did. So I think part of the problem, uh, the question has often been, I mean, a lot of the quality of policing in many areas, it's often driven by pressure from the middle classes, right? The certain... Um, they have certain expectations, right, of, of, of governance and, 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 and trying to shape uh, that quality of, of, of governance. Um, and I don't think, I mean, it's fair to say that, of course, there are people, there are voices within Ghana that are, are calling for police reforms, holding police to account and all those sort of things. But it's fair to say that police killings in Ghana doesn't seem to be um, a border to uh, to the sections of society that you think should be. I mean, the Asawase, is it Asawase uh, killings? Yeah, the Asawase 7, yep, yep.
0: Yeah,
1: I mean, in fact, Asawase is even more recent. Go back to the Dansuman killings in uh, 2005, I think, 2004, yeah. 2005 about six I don't know yeah I think it was 2006 and you had um, uh, a monomon uh, commission or committee investigate this and this was a wonderful opportunity to um, think about institutional reforms right but at the end of the day it said nothing about those sort of things or virtually nothing no, nothing that was meaningful to be able to bring any change and then you had a Sawasi, there's pressure. There's need to be a committee. Then there's a committee, but there's no follow-up, right? No pressure to ensure that this actually translates into clear policy uh, uh, changes, into uh, operation operating procedures that would ensure that police officers who engage in such acts are brought to account. So, um, unfortunately. I think we've already we've already talked about the problems within the police service. And we know that police accountability or the quality of policing doesn't always come from within the police service. It comes from some sort of external uh, pressures. And these external pressures, I'm afraid, are missing in, in Ghana. Why that is the case, it's, it's really hard for me to, uh, uh, to tell. Maybe we see the victims of police violence as, uh, again, who are the victims, right? They they, they are not, they are the margins of society, invariably. And, um, yeah, another person is shot dead. It's an armed robber Yeah, is it the police says he is? He is. And, um, uh, yeah, unfortunately, sorry, it's hard to tell why people are reluctant other than the fact that, yeah, the, the social distance between the victims and those who should be putting pressure for reforms is quite, is quite wide. And, and you've got to identify with victims and pros, uh, potential victims sometimes to be able to want to do something about power. Uh, and here we have a situation where there, there, there doesn't seem to be quite a strong identification, right? Uh, the social distance between them uh, is quite uh, significant.
0: I think that 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 is spot on. I think there is such a thing as these people deserve it. And when we think about even the way middle class to upper class people live, they are gated communities, they are built up walls with uh, barbed wire. And all those mechanisms that they put in place, even to the extent of building their own police stations in their own sort of neighborhoods so that they they protect themselves from the nuisance of these criminals. And so when they are killed, there's, there's little sympathy for them, even though, you know, there's never even an investigation of where these people are actually armed robbers. Um, and, and this brings me to my question. Uh, me and you have had a, a few conversations about, around like, what are the statistics around the number of people who've been killed by police in Ghana or the number of people who've been injured. And I remember I had a conversation with you about that and and, and thinking about how perhaps there's also a sort of invisibilization of the extent of the problem. And, and I'm making references here to what happened in the US, for example, where it was discovered that there wasn't any kind of nationwide systematic collection of of killings, uh, police killings. Um, and, and then people on their own started collecting it. And The Guardian did one 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 report like that and started counting the, the deaths. How far are we uh, in terms of demanding accountability and sort of... W- you know, getting the data to actually also say this is a problem? This is an
1: excellent uh, question. And, and, I mean, it, it, one is struck by the um, the U.S. case because there's a sense in which you you can if you like, say, forgive the Ghanaian situation because almost, if you take any type of crime in Ghana, the records are quite poor. Uh, but in the U.S., they seem to be doing a lot in documenting all sorts of data. But police violence wasn't really something that they took seriously and i think we are really way way off from a situation where we have accurate records of police violence in ghana i mean should uh, deadly use of deadly force is just one example right uh, the beatings the other forms of assault uh, which simply lack that data i uh, as she said we, we've had this chat before i started to try and document uh, some of these cases, taking the inspiration from the Guardian and Washington Post um, case of basically looking out for media reports, but again, that's only going to give you a, a certain fraction of cases, right? And um, and I think we we what I'm trying to do is is to work both with uh, with the media, some uh, perhaps a couple of research assistants who are tracking some of these uh, reports, and then of course uh, with the police to see whether they can be a little bit forthcoming with some of these uh, these data. But my sense is that the police don't seem to have the data, they don't seem to collect the data in a a systematic way and even if they did, you only have to ask them for uh, the data for, I don't know, a year or two ago and and they would not be able to to locate that. Even with robbery, I remember doing a small project with them where uh, they had asked me to interview uh, victims of robberies about their experience with the police, and when I've gone to uh, the police stations, it, it, even for robberies that had happened uh, uh, three a couple of months uh, before, they struggle to 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 retrieve the record. Okay, so I think it's it should be part of again we, we we've mentioned reforms and so forth. It should be part of the reform agenda for any police uh, service. To the extent that it thinks uh, com- public confidence is important, to the extent that it thinks its legitimacy it's important, that accountability is important. Then data will not become some extraneous uh, kind of consideration, right? You want to keep accurate records. If you want to tackle the problem of police violence, you cannot tackle it based on opinions or feelings. You have to tackle it based on Data. And it's not just data on how many shootings have we had. You need data on the con the, the circumstances of the shooting, right? Who are these officers? What is it that they were responding to? Was it that they just chanced upon the incident leading to the shootings, or they were called to the incident? So is this a kind of reactive or proactive incident? Who were the victims? Where? Which environment? So you need a range of variables, okay, to be able to get a better sense of the problem and then to try to, to resolve it. But to the extent that we don't see police violence as a problem that requires immediate action, we will not be we, we, we will not see any need for data. Okay. Imagine we appointed a police chief that part of the quote unquote performance target was to reduce uh police killings, right? <laughs> or police violence, and that if she didn't do that, she would be fired, she would take data extremely serious, right? So I, I think it's 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 all part of the of the problem we have of not uh, accountability being weak and not seeing any immediate need for uh, for the kind of reforms that you and I have had the chance to uh, to discuss so uh, unfortunately we will continue as if you like at the individual level to try and document uh, some of these uh, these cases but it, it has to be said that it, it's not going to give us an accurate uh, picture of what is
0: happening I've also started documenting them myself uh, just thinking about how to and what I came across what I noticed was even in the poli- in the news reports the victims na- are not named we don't know their ages uh, and so I've al- already run into that challenge of okay who are, who are these people who are even killed you don't well I,
1: I, that's a good point we came we, excellent point we, we encountered that and so part of what we have been doing is once we get a fair idea of where the incident happened then we get research assistance in that community to try and track their families to fill in uh, some of the details about the the age the um uh, educational qualification employment status a little bit about their background and all those sort of things and even uh, we're also measuring whether they hear this on the news or the police inform them and what the okay what kind of care the police extended to them and, and so forth uh, so th- you're right that these are not things you will get from the media reports so the media reports are only uh, a pointer which we then try to um, to follow up
0: it's clear that there's even the way the victims are treated once they are labeled armed robbers there really is no need to even dig further and figure out what exactly Happened uh, because he deserved to die.
1: Apparently, yeah. yeah. Very recently, I, yeah, I was, we had just had a conversation, and I I saw a media, I saw a, a report regarding um, a guy whom they said was quote unquote a notorious something thief who had been arrested and and tied to the gates of something. And and the media report just concluded that this guy was one, he was notorious, two, he was a thief, and three, he was. And I was just like, goodness, what evidence have you got that this guy is? nothing is anything more than a a suspect right yeah so
0: and i think that's part of the normalization of these deaths that it it doesn't become projected as a problem and and i think part so so my my worry is then what is informing policy i i don't understand how how policy is being informed with no data Uh, and i know you've done a bit of work on crime statistics and i'm wondering um you know what what data are they using to drive policy and how are they also evaluating the sort of strategies for example i believe the checkpoints should go i don't see the reason why the checkpoints are there it's like we are almost living in an occupied sort of territory where we have to go through checkpoints at night <laughs> and they become they become um, you know, when I started going out at night, I really noticed the checkpoints and I was like, wow, this is so troubling to be in a democracy that we are not even in a state of emergency or anything and just to have checkpoints all over the place at night. And, you know, so, you know, I had a, a conversation with one uh, senior gen. I was talking about the checkpoint, talk, you know, what sort of evaluation goes into maintaining some of these tactics. And after a while, have we really checked to see whether they work, you know? So what, 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 what is it? So, so essentially, what is driving policy then? <laughs>
1: Uh, I think police services and, and evidence, <laughs> both are like, globally, they seem to be like strange uh, fellows. And again, here we've got a problem, for example, with stop and searches. The police think it's a wonderful tactic, they want to use it, then the inspectorate keeps telling them, show me the evidence that this thing actually works. And the police are struggling to produce that kind of evidence. I think the problem is often with some of these tactics is that, they are not targeted right and for you to be to 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 target them at concentrations of whatever crime problem that you are trying to resolve or you are trying to tackle you need data okay you need you don't need just like some global data you need data that at the granular level right really specific data that okay this virus so for example if it's armed robbery we know that violence in any city is not randomly distributed it tends to be concentrated at certain places now we, we you and I are just let's for now take for granted. Or let's let's not focus on the socioeconomic economic inequalities and all those sort of things. Okay, we've got the violence; it's concentrated at certain places. You think that top and searches or checkpoints are the way to try and deal with this? You you, you cannot have a situation where the choppers, uh, uh, the checkpoints are just randomly assigned, right? We feel that this is the place. And even we have studies that show that if you ask police officers where are a partic- where are particular crimes concentrated and um, uh, where they think the crimes are concentrated and what their own data show, is there's quite a significant uh, mismatch, misalignment, right? So the, one cannot make uh, tactical decisions, st- uh, design strategies that are not informed by, by uh, data. It could be that they have internally quite rich data which they are using to inform some of these checkpoints. I, I do not know, okay? But it remains the case that police forces shouldn't should be uh, ready to publish evaluations that they make and there's a question as to whether they should be the ones doing the evaluation in the first place right <laughs> they probably should be working with others to provide some quote-unquote independent evaluation of of what of their of their strategy and that's because there's, there's there are, there are often methodological issues right when you ask uh, police officers and it's not just ghana almost everywhere yeah. uh, about the crime plan they say oh we had 15 murders or 15 robberies last week. We put in this intervention, and now we have eight uh, robberies. So our intervention worked. Okay. Now this kind of basic before and after measure is not really robust enough. Probably the the robberies would have gone down sharper without your intervention. Okay. So there there, there are uh, I I don't know of any clear evaluations that they do, um, but I think there's there's a need for that uh, for a, a data to inform their strategy. And you and I have had this discussion briefly about, so just look at crime statistics in Ghana. If you look at the violent crimes, the most prevalent violent crime in Ghana is not robbery. It is not murder. It is sexual violence, right? And in places like Accra, the rates are staggering compared uh, with the other types of crimes. So you would have thought that policing strategy would be directed more at working with other agencies, whether it's social welfare or whatever, to try and deal with the, the, the violent crime, sexual violence situation, especially care for the victims of these uh, types of violence. But that's not what we are discussing, right? When you open, when you listen to the media, it's not what is being discussed. It's about a robbery and how people wear masks. I'm not saying robberies are not uh, important, but if you've got limited resources, if you're looking at harms and you want to prioritize the use of your resources, you shouldn't be chasing people who steal laptops or uh, phones or, 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 or I mean really insignificant uh, things you should be directing your resources at crimes like murder robbery and sexual violence unfortunately we are not doing that
0: one of the questions i wanted to talk about was um you know at the end of the day it it seems as if it, it goes back to the point you were making earlier on about the concerns of of the privileged become the concerns of the police <clears throat> the reason why It is um, robbery and armed robbery is because, obviously, it's the rich people who seem to be very concerned about protecting their wealth. But on the other hand, too, we have a form of one of the interesting things I noticed about Ghana is, is because the police don't really meet the needs of most Ghanaians. In terms of, I mean, I've had my 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 father's home burgled before, and we went went to the police. They didn't do anything, and there are many many people with similar stories. So then it seems as if a lot of the time it is the um, it is their own citizens who often become sort of community enforce enforcement or enforcers. I mean, many, many incidents of people arresting a petty thief on their own and then taking the person to the police station or arresting the situation and then calling the police and the police just comes to pick the suspect. Uh, And I'm wondering how that then plays into how we should think about policing broadly. Of course, there are there problem of lynching and and so on as well but it seems to me that there's already a model in place where citizens are already kind of dealing with security in their own communities and, and then calling the police after they've dealt with it I
1: think um, of course the, re- the reason we we, we will prefer um, the police intervention rather than community is this idea that the police are are required to operate within certain normative constraints right and 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 to be to be accountable in, 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 I mean, to work in a way that promotes the rule of law, right? That promotes the rule of law. And, and we often say that what were, some of the pressures are between the um, commitments to the rule of law and of course to democracy, right? They, they don't always, um, uh, there, there are often tensions between them, okay? So if you look at a community solution, it, there's the risk that it, it's so influenced by uh, democratic pressures, right? By what most people, what majority wants in a way that might not be sufficiently sensitive to the kind of um, injustices, the uh, kinds of human rights violations, and the power inequalities, okay? The police were supposed to be the ones that would take care of all this, right? So whether you are rich or poor wouldn't matter. Whether you are uh, male or female wouldn't matter. Whether Even if you were the uh, the chief or you were the farmer, it, it wouldn't really matter. Right? Uh, and they will not be influenced by I- any other factors than in the ethics and, and the rule of law and, and so forth. So I think there's clearly, of course, uh, uh, there's room for the police to work with local communities to deal with some of the problems, but one needs to have structures in place that will prevent, if you like, a vigilante solution. Okay, And, and unfortunately, if you look across um, Ghana, there's this almost like a vigilante, <laughs> I don't know, is a pandemic or something? <laughs> it's a vigilante it's it's mindset, right across—it doesn't matter which section of society, where the the mind—I mean, almost across the spectrum. This idea of the rule of law, of ethics, of um, impartial adjudication by 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 third party and all that—that all seem to be thrown out out of the window. And 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 once you have that, of course, then we don't see any. sort difference between what the state promises us and what the community is willing to do. So you might end up with a com- the police and uh, community thinking, well, there's no difference. We can resolve these problems. If the question is just shoot and kill them, we can do that, right? If, if the question is just do what the most powerful in society think, okay, we can do that. You wouldn't see any 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 difference between the, the community solution, which we were told is not the best, and, and what the state is promising us. And, and I think that would be, it, it might be worrying if you have uh, community involvement that mimics makes a failed state in, uh, 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 solution.
0: I'm
1: not saying Ghana uh, is a failed state. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, some people are saying, you know, we, <laughs> the way state security forces are operating, it seems that we are we are in a police state. And I mean, there's some there's some credence to that. I think. I mean, the, the sort of powerlessness you feel when you encounter police and they're harassing you, and you know you haven't done anything wrong, and you can't assert your rights. It is scary. I don't know whether you heard news reports this week about two young men who the police extorted amounts of 20000 and 18000 from them. Uh, one of them was driven to Awudome Cemetery, held at gunpoint, uh, and, and told to do a mobile money transfer. The other one was going about his business, and then they also took him and then got money from him i mean of course the officers have been interdicted they've been put on remand and the court case is going on but but this happens so many times that these these are actually the exceptions when they become caught up in the system
1: Yeah, I heard it. it's a very a, a deeply worrying uh, thing. but again, it's there's a bit of it that's about um, what do they say? Do they say uh, uh, garbage in, garbage
0: Yeah, it's all about recruitment. Yeah, it's part of it,
1: and then it's also part of what kind of? I, I think in 2021, it should be it shouldn't be an unreasonable expectation that police supervisors police managers have a fair idea where their officers are and what is it that they are doing and to have the kind of and you said this was an exception in terms of the response from the police to have that exception become the norm right such that if i'm assaulted even insulted by a police officer for no reason i should there should be clear procedures on where can i report this and to have An immediate response. Okay. Of course, no one is presuming that the officers are guilty or anything like that. But at least to have a mechanism in place that is triggered almost as a matter of course to look into this by, I think, an impartial uh, third party um, to help investigate and to ensure that there is uh, a clear determination in in the shortest possible time. Uh, And I think the more the police are able to, to make this the norm, the better it will be in terms of their contribution again to uh, human rights to the rule of law and to democratic governance because that's what they are there for the police are there to facilitate okay to sub- facilitate our um uh, how should I put it um to make sure we enjoy whatever that the state is pro- the democratic state is promising us and it's promising us respect for our rights it's promising us the rule of law it's promising us equitable distribution of Resources. It's promising us uh, freedom to ask questions, to demand answers. It's promising us a civil response to our questions. That's what the police are there to do. They are there to facilitate all these things. There's a sense in which even crime per se is not such a, a dominant uh, a role for the police. Okay, except in very uh, limited cases of like really violent crimes. Otherwise, all these are the things that the police are there for. Because without them, the idea is that. Some people would will violate the human rights, would deny us the chance to ask questions and to, to seek answers. They would uh, arrogate to them or appropriate all these resources, right, and and deny the rest of us uh, whatever. So, if you have a police service that doesn't see corruption, white collar kind of crime as its uh, primary uh, objective, right, that's what it should be tackling in a society like ours, then you have a police service, which you would say, it's not seeing inequalities, it's not seeing injustice as as a, a, a key goal for, for it to address. Thank you so much
0: for your time. I really appreciate it. And I mean, what you've outlined is also sort of the the normative and i and i wonder whether any society has even reached that goal yet where the yeah. police does what you say is doing it's as if oh we've been told that this is the function of the police but we also understand that in 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 the everyday lives of many citizens in many countries will we, we ever get there i guess and that 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 seems to be part of the debate around the function of policing in, in most societies <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think at least it should be what we we struggle to the point that we struggle to reach, right? that our task is to increasingly become this. If that's what we see, then I think it changes the way we, we think. It changes the way we organize our policing. It changes the way we, we carry out even some basic functions today. Um, I, I, each society has to decide, okay, what the nature of policing and the objective of policing should be. And I think um, it, it is not um, unreasonable to have this normative expectation of, of the police. Okay. Uh, and I think uh, precisely because of what we started with, that inequalities in society are such a critical issue. And the police's task, even their traditional uh, mission, is made the more difficult because of those inequalities. And we cannot help but think that those inequalities make even the normative view that we're talking about challenging for them to execute. I'm sure that if we spoke with 100 police officers, probably 90 of Of them will be thinking, yes, this is what should be, right? That we are there to facilitate these and the enjoyment of these rights, okay? Yes, it's also, as we said, uh, part of those rights is the right to life. So we want to make sure people's se- so physical safety needs, right, are, are, are protected. If it's a, a young girl, she has the right to her body, right? doesn't matter what she wears. It doesn't matter whether, even if she wears nothing, it's still her body. She has the right to it. And so no one should violate that, that body. We are there to ensure that that happens. I I, I think that's fairly decent thing to expect from, from a reasonable to expect from a, a decent police thank sense. you so
0: much. Uh, I appreciate your time. Uh, I'm, I look forward to having future conversations with you and hopefully next time it gets a little better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure that's 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 beautiful. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right, okay. I'm an Uber driver, and about this
1: police extortion, guys, you won't believe one day I pick a Nigerian guy.